Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Dana Stevens, whose new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century, is an absolute must for Buster Keaton fans out there. It's uh, it's a great uh, look at the life of a man who I consider to be one of the founding fathers of... Um, film comedy essentially and and just cinema generally he is he is to cinema so influential and uh i think several of his films would be uh would be in my top 10 of all-time great movies dana uh, has been the slate's film critic since 2006 her work has appeared in the new york times the washington post the atlantic and now she is here with us. Imagine that to have climbed such heights to finally get to writers on film. Oh, how the mighty have fallen! Um, <laughs> uh, if you enjoy the, the the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, do something nice for your enemies. Tell them, tell them to listen to writers on film. I'm sure they'll enjoy it, and maybe you'll become friends afterwards. And world peace will spread across the globe you can follow me on twitter at dr john t d r j o n t y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation
the idea for the approach preceded the idea of of the biography. I mean, I never mm. sort of sat down to write a biography of Keaton and then thought, but how do I mix it up and make it different? It was more like, why has my curiosity about him never been kind of satisfied by anything I've read, you know? And at that point I had been reading about him for, you know, not only that, but I had been sort of on and off reading what I could about that period and silent cinema and his life span for 20 years or something. And I, I always felt like there weren't enough concentric circles in the puddle, if that makes sense, you know, and that I wanted to almost slow down and, and expand the perspective on each um, era of his life to sort of see not just who he was and what the work was that he made, but kind of how he happened in history. And so that's what the book is trying to do. There's a certain serendipity in that he arrives just at the point where cinema is kind of is kind of coming out. And you kind of make the point as well that one of the very, very first sort of moving pictures that's ever made is somebody doing a little bit of slapstick in a garden. Right. I mean, you could in a way call that the first movie, although, of course, people had been watching moving images for a few years at that time in Edison's, you know, I always forget what it's called, the machine kinetoscope. Is that what it is? The thing yeah. where you turn a crank and look inside of it. But yeah, the very first film shown in the Lumiere Brothers' first lineup of projected films for an audience in 1895, which is the same year as Keaton was born, which is why I start off writing about it, was the, I think a lot of people who know about early film have probably seen or at least heard about this, was the the Sprinkler Sprinkled, it's called in French, mm -hmm. La Roseur à Rosé, which is a, a little sort of joke scenario. It lasts about a minute, I think, maybe 30 seconds, uh, of a man watering a garden and a little boy comes in steps on the hose the guy can't figure out why the water has stopped flowing so he looks at the hose and then it sprays him in the face and it's a joke that had already been in a newspaper cartoon at that time that was repeated in many movies after but in a way you could say that the first time people sat down together to watch a movie what they saw was a slapstick act you know and a father-son slapstick act which is exactly what Keaton grew up doing you know on vaudeville with his father it couldn't be more slapstick than he he does with his father because it's like and you go into this in some detail I, I i found fascinating how brutal that act was yeah well this was something that really struck me on reading the contemporary accounts of of that act which is you know i mean you'll always read about and he talked about in interviews how it was regarded as the roughest act in vaudeville and you know that the part of the the thrill of the act was not just the laughter but the suspense of you know how is this kid going to survive all these falls and throws that his dad is putting him through but what had what really struck me reading you know vaudeville bills and and critics writing about it at the time or just audience response was that there was yeah there was something dangerous about it there was there was there was something almost unseemly and i write a little bit in the book about you know wanting to get in a time machine and go back and see the act but also being a little afraid to because it's it's sort of like i know it would make me laugh and what does that say about me <laughs> you know <laughs> given that the the act the, the act the three keatons the family act was constantly in danger of getting shut down and was always getting shut down by you know the the child abuse and child labor authorities who um and boo, I have a whole chapter about boo, this. Boo. <laughs> well, but it's such an ambivalent boo because, you know, at the same time, they were sort of, um, you know, these Puritans who were coming through and trying to spoil everyone's fun in vaudeville, but they were part of the same progressive movement that had, you know, started sending kids to school and made child abuse uh, an illegal act in America. And so Keaton was just growing up at this time when the definition of childhood was changing so fast and was right on the cusp of that in so many ways and really didn't benefit from any of those progressive reforms because he did spend his childhood on stage and never went to school. And, you know, I guess by our modern standards was abused by his father on stage. And he himself admitted that, you know, in a certain period, 
when his father, Joe Keaton, was drinking a lot that he was abused offstage. So, yeah, he always denied that he had an unhappy childhood or that he was driven by any kind of, you know, trauma from that or anything. But of course he was going to deny that. You know, that was just the kind of um, very stoic and laconic personality he had. And when you look at his life story and, you know, these very dark years that he had for a short while, but a really dark while in the middle of his life, it just seems impossible that he wasn't affected, you know, by by that childhood that he had, whether it was the stage throwing or the offstage drinking his dad was doing, you know, it was just it was it was a lot to grow up with. I mean, not to mention that he was supporting his entire family from the time he was around six years old, you know, because it was it was him that people came to see in the vaudeville act. And that's really clear in the contemporary coverage, too. Yeah, I have to I have to point out that my booze were, were channeling Mugatu from Zoolander when he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he, he's booing the the child labor laws. <laughs> I don't, I'm not actually I don't actually uh, think that it's uh, that was that was a nice callback. Yeah. But no, there is there is that ambivalence around his childhood where once it seems there's a there's one book on, on Keaton, um, not a biography, but a sort of uh, um, analysis of his films that begins with a sentence. I think the very first sentence is, you know, it's hard to imagine a more wonderful American childhood than the one Buster Keaton had, you know, and from the way he told the stories, Keaton told the stories, it did seem really fun. You know, he was learning to, I don't know, walk a tightrope and juggle from the other acts that he saw. And he loved trains, as we see from his movies, right? Where trains are an obsessive image, but he loved spending his life in this kind of peripatetic way. But it just, you really, really see how all of that must have turned him both into the performer that he was and into the human being that he was, which was a fairly complicated and not always happy person. I mean, one of the things that gets me as well is I'm always wondering how he didn't get hurt or, or is it like the Jackie Chan movie where you watch the movie marveling at how he manages all the stunts and how he never gets hurt and then they show you the outtakes and you go, oh, he did break his ankle and his neck <laughs> right? and he was right. rushed to hospital five times. So is it like he was just bouncing or is it like uh, Lawrence of Arabia William Potter, it does. It's not caring that it hurts. That's the trick. <laughs> I think it was some some combination. I mean, it does seem odd that both he and Chan even made it to old age, you know, because they had so many opportunities to be killed in some dramatic stunt or another. Uh, but I think it was a combination. I mean, as he used to say, it, that he learned to take falls really well. I mean, if you know, if, if your instinctive muscle memory is, you know, a six foot tall man is throwing me into an orchestra pit, you know, obviously you've had to learn how to fall and how to compensate and kind of relax the right muscles at the right time really well. Yeah, but at the same time, I think he probably had a high threshold for pain. There, there are stories about he definitely did break uh, break his neck. I mean, fracture a vertebra in a in one stunt. And um, that was one with the water coming down, wasn't it? That, yeah, that was one from um, from Sherlock Jr., I believe. Yeah, mm. and that was the, the famous story where he didn't realize his neck was broken for 15 years or something like that. You know, he went on. I think he, he says he, he had a headache, but he just went on with shooting the next day. And uh, and many years later, he was getting x-rayed for something else. And the doctor said, oh, when did you break your neck? And he looked, thought back and realized it, it must have been at that moment. Oh, my God. That's so that makes me, uh, you know, complaining about the last cold I had seem uh, seem very pathetic <laughs> by comparison. So I mean, he's got this he's got this childhood where he is, you know, support he he very very quickly becomes like the main supporter financially of his father and his mother and uh and and he has simple siblings going going ahead right he has two younger siblings yeah. who they tried to incorporate into the act there were the five keatons for a short while the four and then the five but his two younger siblings were neither particularly skilled at performing nor really cared about performing and once they got to be in their late childhood they went to boarding school, which he also paid for, you know, so they 
they had somewhere to be while they were on the road and the whole family would be together in the summers at this um actor's cottage that the uh, actor's colony cottage that they had in um in michigan and and then he sort of has to transition because at a certain point he just becomes too he, he just grows up you know and he can no longer be this juvenile comedian um, how does he manage that transition into into sort of being an adult performer? Well, the stories of his adolescence are, are really fascinating because it seems like, first of all, the Three Keatons act had to change significantly when his father couldn't pick him up and throw him anymore. He was mm. still small in comparison with his father, but his father was getting older. He also, it seems like, increased his drinking a lot in, in Keaton's adolescence. And that became a really rocky time for the family where it seems like according to Keaton's own telling of the story, that both he and his mother were being abused and that he, he the young, younger Keaton, felt that he was being punished on, sta on, on stage for things that had happened with his father off stage, you know, and that that line had blurred. It seems like they had a few years that were a really bad time. And I write about this some in the book, too, that his father would act out and get mad at theater managers. There was a famous occasion where he trashed a bunch of furniture at a theater, um, you know, the, the props that belonged to the theater, just out of having some sort of beef with the theater manager and that was a really bad move for the three keatons act because they then got demoted to a, a less prestigious vaudeville circuit so they had to do three shows a day instead of two that's even more exhausting and more chance for injury and it seems like at some point during that year or after that year of you know traveling in this in this more exhausting and stressful way that myra keaton buster's mother said you know i'm going to leave your dad and you know we have to break up the act and for her and because of her he did it. And this to me, to me, it's if there was a Keaton biopic, this is a scene that I always picture. There's this really dramatic moment where they just leave the dad behind. They get on a different train than the one that they were supposed to be heading to their next gig on and just leave him at the stage door, you know, drunk there with his 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 box of things and um, and escaped across the country on a train. The family did eventually reunite to the degree that, you know, his father was would see the kids again. But the his two parents were never, um, you know, they never lived together again after that. And yeah, that left Buster Keaton in a real spot because he was still responsible for supporting all these people, his siblings and his parents. And uh, he knew he had to entertain in some way, but he had never performed as a single act. So um, he almost immediately, because he was quite a name in vaudeville at that point, um, got a job, got a, you know, booked himself a job in theater. But he was still figuring out how he was going to perform without somebody to throw him around and exactly what the nature of that act would be when he got into the movies. And that's a whole chapter in the book because it's also kind of a famous story in, in Keaton lore, the way that he ended up crossing paths with Roscoe Arbuckle and, you know, stepping in front of his, for the first time, stepping in front of a film camera and just immediately being at home there, you know, and mm. part of the story as he tells it is that uh, after this day, when he went to observe some shooting at, at Arbuckle studio saying, I'm, I'm just going to observe, I've never seen a movie being made before. He winds up in front of the camera, you know, he does, he improvises a couple of great comedy bits with Arbuckle. And the next thing he knew, he was tearing up his contract, you know, to go on stage as a solo act. And um, and both in front of and behind the camera, becoming really Arbuckle's partner. It's such a it's such a uh, again that this idea of the alternative history is kind of running off because Arbuckle, of course, is famously involved in in a scandal. Which I mean, you know, we're talking about this just on the uh, the day after the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial has finished. Which I, I'm I definitely don't want to go into the merits of. Don't you worry. But um, it's. It seems like this sort of inaugural Hollywood scandal, if you like, completely changes Buster's career. That It would be completely different if that hadn't happened. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is true that they had just stopped working together at that point. Like, Keaton mm. had just 
inherited Arbuckle Studio essentially in 1919, 1920, right around, right around then is the moment that, you know, Arbuckle was so successful at that point, both as a director and a comedian, that he was offered the chance to star in features, which was really unusual for comedians then. Even Chaplin had not made his first feature film at that point that, that directed by himself. And, and so Keaton inherits his studio. It gets renamed the Buster Keaton Studio. And it's at that moment, you know, about a year after that happened that that the the scandal takes place. So it's not the case that they stopped working together because of that, mm. but who knows, you know, I mean, certainly they would have gone on to, to collaborate more and their friendship would have continued and Roscoe Arbuckle would have had a career if not for that scandal. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the, the, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp scandal and say, I don't want to get into that mess because I feel similarly about the Arbuckle trial in a way. And I don't go <laughs> deeply into it in the book because it's just been a story that's been, you know, told many times, usually told wrong, but there are some books now that have really gone into the forensic evidence and kind of looked into what happened at the trial and so forth. And I feel pretty confident in saying that it really was just a series of three kangaroo trials, you know? And so when mm. it gets cited as some latter day Me Too story, it really gets to me because mm. it's not, it was not really, if you actually look at the records, uh, some sort of she said, he said situation because there was no she to say anything anymore. You know, this young woman who had been at a party, admittedly, you know, a wild flapper party at his at his hotel room died a few days later. And she doesn't appear to from from forensic reports have been sexually assaulted or murdered. You know, there was no rape and there was no murder or manslaughter. It seems like it was a series of, you know, suborned witnesses um, blackmailers, you know, lying on the stand, uh, yellow journalists, you know, tabloids like the William Hurst papers covering it very sensationally and just really the public being ready to turn on Hollywood at that moment, you know, because of other things that have been going on as well. And, you know, drug abuse and kind of, you know, news about the immorality of Hollywood was starting to break onto the public. And it was just really a moment when there was a real turn against the, the culture in Hollywood. And Arbuckle was really pretty much a sacrificial goat, you know, kind of victim of that. And it's a very, very sad story because it seems like it's something that really broke his spirit and, you know, mm. kicked him out of the film business, practically speaking, but also really kept him from ever being able to to get back to where he was, you know, even even once he was allowed to make movies again. I mean, this is a sort of, if you like, it's apart from the scandal and maybe maybe I'm going a little bit achronologically here, but one of the things I noticed about Arbuckle when I was watching his early shorts with Keaton, the, the, the very first ones that Keaton appears in, um, is I didn't like his comedy as much as I like Buster Keaton's comedy. I, I found there was something in the comedy itself. And again, I want to stipulate this is nothing to do with the scandal at all. There's something slightly cruel about the comedy that I don't quite get. Whereas I find Keaton more, you know, simpatico, if, if that's, uh, if I can say that. I mean, Keaton's comedy has certainly aged better than Arbuckle's. You know, as I write about in the book, there's some moments in those Keaton-Arbuckle collaborations, the films they made together between 1917 and 19. 19 or 20. I mean, not in every film, but in some of them, there's a, as you say, there's a really dark streak that sometimes gets sadistic, you know, and is sometimes very racist and very sexist, you know, in these brief flashes, but in these flashes that really tell you a lot 
not so much about who those two people were, but about like the toxic world, you know, that was surrounding them at that moment, that there are just these little throwaway gags that now to us seem, you know, really shocking in some ways. And some of them do have to do with sort of Me Too situations, like the the scene where Arbuckle sprays, they're working at a pharmacy or something, and he sprays this kind of chloroform in a girl's face so he can steal a kiss from her, you know, things like that. But I, I wouldn't say that those are particularly typical of, of Arbuckle's humor. What's, mm. what's odd about his humor, I think now, is that he was perceived as he was so beloved by the public mm. you know he was really perceived as this this very dear lovable and even a romantic hero sometimes you know in spite of his girth you know there's the all this the series that he made with mabel normand that i write about a little bit where they were sweethearts you know and she was a sort of great beauty you know leading lady of the time and Yet when people turned against him in 1921 because of the scandal, you know, it was this sudden just 180 degree flip. And suddenly, you know, this real cruelty about his size and how that must mean he was this monster and he had crushed a girl to death. And so there's a there's almost a hostility in the audience's love for him. And uh, and Keaton doesn't really have that. You know, there's something about him, on the other hand, as a performer. And it seems like this was true since he was a very small child that you know, audiences just connected to and loved. And if his name was on a marquee, they wanted to see the movie. And that was even true after he got into sound, you know, and after when he was at MGM in the early 30s, making these terrible, terrible comedies um, that had nothing to do with his persona that had been written for him by a team of writers who didn't understand his humor at all. And those movies did really well at the box office. In fact, most of them did better than any of his silent movies had done at the box office, you know? Oh my God, and people are idiots. That's so sad, <laughs> so sad to contemplate, right? I mean, to me, it, it breaks my heart almost more than if they had been flops, because you could you could then imagine that he could justify to himself, well, you know, once I stop doing my thing and my kind of humor and doing my own stunts and all of that, people won't want to watch, but they did, you know, and part of that was because MGM had a great marketing arm and was just able to get its movies out there. But a huge part of it, I think, is that he was just, he had this kind of untarnishable, you know, brilliance that, that the audience still wanted to see, even when it, it was almost like he was an animal in a cage in those movies. And I find them very hard to watch. I haven't seen any of them really more than once, except to maybe fast forward through to look at a scene that I'm writing on. But they were the hardest part of the research, really, was just to watch those movies from the time when he was so miserable. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any of them, to tell you the truth. I think I've seen, I, I mean, I remember him turning up in Something Happened on the Way to the Forum. Well, that's different. Once you get past the, the early 30s, I have fun watching him on film again, even though, you know, it was very rare that he would be in a film that took advantage of his true capacity you know to be funny and to, to to do stunts and so forth i mean once you fast forward to the early 60s when he was getting as you say those little parts and little cameos in those big star stuffed vehicles that were the fad at the time i find those really fun to watch because he was he was once again doing things that he wanted to do and, and that persona that he has that we, I, I guess we should when when does that really solidify i mean buster he gets that when he's already vaudevillian you know um according to some via Houdini. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I don't even mention that story in my book because it's been debunked, or I may just briefly mention it, but it is such a great story. I mean, it's one of those things where it's almost like believe the legend, you know? Mm. And the spirit of that story that Houdini named him is the, is the you know piece of lore that kind of sprung up. It seems to have been invented by his press agent probably when he was starting off in film, but he never really contradicted it. It was one of those kind of myths. But it is true that Houdini traveled with his parents when he was very small, before he got on stage, um, that Houdini was a friend of his father. There's some surviving letters that Joe Keaton wrote to Houdini, including about his brilliant son and how they were becoming a big success because of him. Uh, the part of the story that isn't true, I think, is that Houdini was the friend of his parents who picked up 
baby buster when he fell down a flight of stairs and said, well, that one's a real buster. And that's mm-hmm. how he got his nickname. But that does seem to have really happened. It was just with another less famous <laughs> friend of the parents in vaudeville. <laughs> it was Jimmy Houdini. <laughs> Houdini we never hear about. So he, he gets his name really early on. And he his persona as the kind of stoic, long-suffering, you know, the guy who never laughs, the literally kind of invents de- modern modern day deadpan. When does that come about? Is that still in, in the vaudeville? Or is it? Um, yeah, that, that existed in vaudeville. He talks a little bit about that. I mean, it seems like that that evolved somewhat naturally from the act he and his dad had, which itself, according to Myra Keaton, Buster's mother, you know, the act itself evolved from just the kind of horseplay that the two of them would do off stage. You know, that he was already a very physical kid who loved to do tricks with his dad. And of course, he was growing up in vaudeville, seeing all these other people do things. So he and his father just sort of developed this fighting, playing style that then was extrapolated into what they did on stage. And a couple of really early uh, descriptions of the act will mention. And the, when the little boy comes out of this you know, amazing fall, he's always smiling. And that sort of strikes you now saying, wait, he was always smiling. But it seems like pretty early on they discovered that people laughed more when he didn't smile, you know, and he Mm. just naturally had those big eyes and that serious face and a kind of thoughtful demeanor. And when they incorporated that into the act, the audience loved it even more. So he tells the story of remembering his, his dad reminding him not to smile, that he'd be throwing him and he'd be kind of whispering through gritted teeth on stage um, face. That's what his father used to say, face, face, you know, meaning like keep a blank face. So yeah, by the time he got into film, it seems like he already had that performing style in place. And it certainly, during all of his silent films, never really wavered. In fact, there's a story he tells about, I believe is at the end of Steamboat Bill Jr. I'm not sure which film it was, but where, where if someone suggested that he smile, the um, the director said, why don't we try a take where you smile at the end and it'll be a surprise. Like the joke to the audience will be, look, Buster Keaton is smiling because he got the girl. And, uh, and Keaton said, it's not going to work, but fine, we'll try it. And sure enough, they showed it to a test audience and everybody booed when he smiled. So they re- re-recorded it the other way. That's, that's such a good film as well. Is that, the one, is that the one where he gets the girl and then you have a quick vignette of them going to the grave? Oh, no, that's not... College, which is just incredible. Yes, yeah, I have a bit on that yes. in the book. It's such an unexpected ending to that film, College, which is in a way one of his more conventional you know, it feels like something that was really made to please the market more than a lot of his his films did. But then, yeah, he slips in this incredibly dark ending, just a three shot montage of the the young lady that he's just skipped off to the chapel with to get married. And what is it? The first the first shot, the two of them are, you know, in the nursery and there's a little boy playing behind them and she's knitting or something like that. Then they're an old couple sitting by the fire and they don't look that happy. And then there's two gravestones next to each other. <laughs> blank gravestones which somehow the blankness makes it even sadder like they're these anonymous you know corpses by the end and there that's a moment where you see you know some of the real darkness that keaton could sometimes slip in you know he just had a very sardonic side that sometimes came out with arbuckle too if you've seen good night nurse uh which i think is my favorite of the movies he made with with arbuckle there's some really really dark moments too and jokes about death and about bad doctors you know he plays keaton plays a bad doctor who has this blood-stained smock and you know he just it doesn't auger well when you see him coming into your (laughs) treatment room i mean i love the shorts as we go on and buster starts doing his own and he does shorts like um cops which are just like masterpieces of their form absolutely already from that point even with the shorts he's 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 got a sort of 
gigantic vision as well. He's able to take very small, humorous tricks and vaudeville tricks and then escalate it until it's literally like a cast of hundreds. Yeah, Cops is a really good example of that. And, and I t often tell people if they, they want to know where to start with Keaton, I'll tell them to start with either or both one week and Cops, which are mm -hmm. two of those 20 minute shorts, you know, both of which I would say are they're just you couldn't imagine them being more perfect. Right. I mean, they're 20 minutes long, but they have the the narrative arc and the, um, you know, the kind of theme, like you say, the thematic size, you know, of a much bigger, longer movie. They're just these perfect little compact masterpieces and Cops in particular is great for seeing that nihilistic side we were talking about. Right. It also has yeah. a really dark ending, which I won't give away. And yeah, just has some of the most astounding chase scenes in any of his films. One Week, on the other hand, is very small scale. It's almost a two-hander. You know, it's got a few mm. supporting characters, but mainly it's him and his bride in the movie, played by Sybil Seeley, who I think was his best leading lady in a few of those shorts. And it's just this, it's like this marriage story. It's the story of these newlyweds trying to construct a house together from a kit home. And of course they get it completely screwed up and the house that they build ends up being this disaster. And uh, it's just such a beautiful metaphor for marriage and for trying to make a life with someone that, as I say in the book, it's like every wedding, every new couple should get as a wedding gift, a high quality copy of the film One Week, because you can always go back to it and see something new i love that movie oh, it's so good it's like the it's it's what ikea has done to all of us in one way or another <laughs> <laughs> it's, like it's true they should have it on a loop running at ikea oh it's so good i love that film and i i, I love all of those shorts they're, they're they're my happy place i put them on i was always a huge chaplin fan so i came to keaton after chaplin but i'm not sure if chaplin sort of superseded or even if it matters i mean it's like uh, rolling stones and the beatles i love them both why why yeah i, I mean i say that in the book i really really don't like the let's pit chaplin against keaton idea because they didn't see each other as pitted against each other in their lives at all you know um they were moving in a universe where they and many other silent comedians that we scarcely talk about now were all pursuing their own things you know and Keaton admired Chaplin's comedy tremendously, although he also once in a while will sort of snark in interviews about what he saw as Chaplin's laziness, you know, because Chaplin had the means um, and the fame to make films at whatever pace he wanted. And for a long period, that was a very, very slow pace, you know, mm. which I'm sure Keaton, especially in the 1930s, when he was no longer in a position to make his own movies at all, you know, it would have been hard not to feel some envy of the guy who had the ability to make any film he wanted. And for example, to continue making silent movies well into the sound era as Chaplin did and you know to still spend six years in between films agonizing over the next one but the, the way that Chaplin comes up in the book mainly is that I have this whole chapter late, late in the book about Limelight the one mm. time that that they ever appeared together the 1952 Chaplin film and uh, even though I don't particularly like that movie um, I, I feel like it's a really rich text for looking at where they each were in their careers at that moment and where the US film industry and film criticism industry and all kinds of other things were. So yeah, it was one, it was an odd thing with Limelight because I watched it really early in my research process, you know, as, as, as I was just kind of watching my way through all Keaton's appearances in various people's films and thought, this movie's terrible. I never want to see it again. <laughs> but my mind kept returning to what it meant for both of them, you know, that they appeared together and, uh, and it ended up being something that I, even though I never loved the film, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And there's always that sort of slight golden 
egg of of sort of what if we could find the 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 b-roll the the what was edited out the sort of unedited version of that last act of them together yeah the one scene of them on stage together exactly Mm. yeah there's there's all these stories that swirl around that too that you know keaton improvised these incredible gags that chaplin cut out and if so why did he cut them out you know was he trying to get laughs for himself or did he just think they didn't work with the scene and even though that scene is probably the best thing or one of the best things in the movie and has some really big laughs in it. And it's fun to see the two of them on stage together. I find it so frustrating to watch because, well, I get into this more in the book more technically, but the way it's framed and the way it's edited just seems to be leaving the best material on the cutting room floor. And that doesn't just mean, you know, there's too much Chaplin and not enough Keaton. I mean, one could easily, I guess, say that as a as a Keaton head as I am, but it's more that that there are things that, that must have been happening when they both could have been in frame and instead it's cutting between them. Don't you agree with me? There's something about that limelight scene that you feel the presence of the lost material really strong. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and you are right that the film around it is a kind of crumbling Dickensian melodrama that uh, is its sentimentality is right out of Victorian times rather than rather than a a, 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 um, you know, a modern, a, mo- a much more modern film, and yet, in- but Chaplin is aware of that too. In a mm. way, there's something fascinating about that because Chaplin is making a movie about this self-pitying comedian, but he's being a self-pitying comedian at the same time. It's almost impossible to tell. It's sort of, does he have an incredibly sharp magnifying glass at which he's looking at his own flaws, but at the same time, he seems really aware, unaware of some of his most painful flaws, like you know, his need to, um, for example, be the object of romantic desire of this very young woman, even though they don't get together in the movie, you know, that then we're going down a whole other path and I don't even (laughs) want to get into Chaplin's personal life. But I mean, I will say that although I continued to admire him as an artist after researching this book, I really can't stand Chaplin as a human being anymore. He he just seems like he was a very unpleasant man with, you know, a lot of pathologies who, who harmed a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's been a recent uh, documentary about the real Charlie Chaplin as well. And it's just like, there's an element of it which which I find, he fe- he feels to me like a person who's very damaged by his own upbringing and that that damage produced talent but it also as you as you say i think it also produced some pathologies so yeah yeah he's sort of caged by what philip larkin called the wrong beginnings you know that might be overly generous but well yeah no and and again like i i don't feel any kind of need to unveil or expose the real chaplain or anything like that in fact I, I wish that I had the patience with him to sit down and, and watch more of his films and, and read more about him. But I know that if I had been researching a book on him, I probably would have given up earlier on because he's just someone that I wouldn't have wanted to think about in that depth for that long. I did read that big, thick biography of Chaplin by David Robinson, and I'm really glad I read it. It's it's an extraordinary example of just the kind of biography that mine isn't, you know, a really mm. meticulous archive dive that just finds every single document in, in Chaplin's life. I really recommend that if you want to learn stuff about him but it didn't make him any more endearing to me i mean i think in a way the phenomenon of chaplin is almost twice as interesting as the the life of the individual himself you know it's the the fact that he was so internationally famous and he was mobbed so you know there was a beatles mania before the beatles yeah the way that he almost you know you could almost say he invented global fame you know single-handedly i mean just because he was one of the first not the first but like one of the first really huge worldwide movie stars Mm. in an era when because there were intertitles that could easily be subbed in in different languages 
you know, if you were famous, it was very easy to be famous worldwide. And as soon as sound came in, it became that became less true, right? And there started to be movie stars that were specific to their country. Like we don't know the, you know, Japanese movie stars of the 1930s or something, right? I mean, it was only in those very, very early days when Hollywood dominated global output of films anyway, that that someone like Chaplin could be so known that it just, it was almost as if even people who had never been to the movies would have known who he was, right? Because of the standees, you know, and posters and toys and, you know, just comics and all of the industry that was generated by his fame. Going back to, to like the, 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 the run of major classic films that, uh, that Keaton has uh, throughout the, the, the 20s, I guess, uh, we're talking about, maybe a bit earlier, it starts a bit earlier as well. Um, and I'm thinking of like Sherlock Jr., which, which might be my favourite, General, the General um, Steamboat Bill Jr. as well, I think. Yeah, two juniors, yeah. Two juniors. He's crazy. There, there's a, there's a, a thing about father, you know, being the son exactly. of Exactly. And Steamboat Bill Jr., I have a whole chapter about it in the book. I think it's maybe my favorite Keaton feature. And part of what fascinates me about it is that I think it is all about working through his relationship with his father. You know, it's the only movie he made that is directly about a father-son relationship and literally about a, a son just trying to earn his father's respect and his love, you know? And when his character does do that at the end of the movie, to me, there's this sense of a almost a resolution of that conflict. And it always makes me wonder what would have happened if he could have kept his independence after that, because that was his last independently produced feature. You know, it was right after that that he signs the contract with MGM. And although he had a couple more good movies to make, he he never made one that was completely a product of his own imagination again. And I feel like that, that particular father son storyline was almost tied up by that movie and that he could have gone down some completely unexpected path afterward. Mm. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a, a sort of enduring irony that you, he keeps making these amazing films. I mean, the general, which is considered, you know, now is considered he's an absolute classic at the time was sort of received a little bit with a lukewarm, uh, you know, critical and commercial response. Yeah, it's so funny to read the contemporary reviews of The General, because as you say now, that's probably his most venerated film. It's not my personal favorite, but I utter, utterly understand why it's the one that makes it into anthologies and, you know, retrospectives and things like that, because it's so him, you know, only mm. he could come up with something so bizarre as this movie where essentially a train is the main character, right? I mean, the, the general isn't a person. It's a, it's the name of his train. And the movie is all about the theft of the train and him chasing it with another. And, you know, it's this beautiful, beautifully conceived and executed chase. Um, but it's also just, it comes from the, the mind of this, you know, very odd <laughs> mechanically minded person who was able to imbue a train with that, that kind of spirit. But the way the general was talked about when it came out was, I mean, it was, it didn't do great at the box office. It did okay, um, but it was pretty much excoriated by most reviewers. I mean, some really, really hated the fact that it combined war and comedy, um, and I write about that. The, the critic Robert Sherwood, who at Life, who was a huge fan and booster of Keaton's all through the 20s, really couldn't stand the general. And I think in part it was because he was a World War One veteran who had seen... Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Horrible things in the war and thought that Keaton's sort of, you know, his his civil war spoofing, it was really not the war that was being spoofed, but um, but for Sherwood, it was just, it was in horrible taste, right? Mm. And then plenty of other reviewers just didn't like it because they didn't think it was funny enough. And to this day, I mean, because it's so focused on stunts and props and, you know, scenery and historical recreation, it's one of Keaton's most jaw-dropping movies, but it's not one of his funniest, really. It's more about thrills and action in many sequences than it is about laughs. So people didn't like that. But yeah, it's it's just very odd that nobody really got it at the time. Not nobody. There were a couple reviewers who liked it, but in general, it was it, re- it was received pretty coldly. And yet, it's probably his movie that's had the greatest longevity. And I've shown it to a few crowds in these past few months while promoting this book. And you know, it still just kills. I mean, it just mm. never doesn't play in front of an audience, and people are both laughing and, as I was talking about earlier, gasping, you know, mm. gasping in shock at some of the things that he, uh, the risks that he subjects himself to. I remember the first time I saw Mad Max Fury Road, halfway through, I just thought, oh, they're remaking the general. This is just the general. <laughs> Absolutely. They yeah, chase it's... out to the desert and then they chase all the way back again. Exactly. So... The structure is just the same. A chase that moves in one direction for the first half and the other direction for the second half. Lots of practical stunts involving mm. vehicles chasing each other. You know, you could really imagine Keaton staging some of those things, like the guys that are sort of on the front of the, that are sort of riding the, I don't know what to describe it, the the antennas. Yeah, exactly. Like all of those things required incredible stunt work and timing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people said that at the time, a lot of reviewers noted the similarities to the general. Yeah. Even like the, the first fight between Shelley's Ferron and uh, Tom Hardy, the, the, where one of them's chained up and the other one, and it's just, it's like a, it's, it's it's silent comedy because it's like, pulling something to get to grab something else and it's it's uh you see it in jackie chan when he's trying to answer seven phone calls in police story Mm -hmm. (laughs) going around the office it's that sort of man versus objects yeah that kind of prop work i say this in the book too is that that was always keaton's one of keaton's big specialties is he loved working with props and he could almost just open a drawer full of silverware and figure out something funny to do with every fork, you know, and there's quite a few movies in which he does that. And then to some degree, that was the way that his movies were conceived, you know, in his, when he had his own studio was that they would build a set, you know, they'd come up with an idea, build a set and throw some props in there and then go and improvise on the set and see what he could figure out to make funny. During COVID, I did a university film club. I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts as well, so apologies to listeners if I'm repeating myself. But one one of the films I said, let's watch Sherlock Jr. And my students, who were all in their 20s, were sort of like, oh, silent film and black and white and all this. Everyone who came back from watching it and, and came to the next week's discussion went, that's the best film I've ever seen. That's the, but without, without doubt, the best film I've ever seen. And it, and they were all just so surprised at how inventive... And talking about prop work, there is like a, a scene of him playing pool in that, which is just 
jaw dropping from the the skill of is there anything this man can't do <laughs> yeah that i i think i read a story about that scene the filming of the the billiards and sherlock jr where he you know he was just very obsessive about doing everything for real you know that it had to be done um without tricks in the camera and without cutting in such a way that it was making he, him look like he had a physical ability he didn't have and i think they took many many takes somebody who was on the set said the number of takes and it was you know it was well into the i don't know over 50 takes or something to make sure that he could sink all of those balls in the order he was going to sink them in without cutting away you know and stuff like that he would get really really obsessive about so yeah he, he but he was also he had incredible aim and i think was extremely talented at things like games like baseball for example mm -hmm. you know his whole life he loved baseball and played it at any opportunity. And in his own studio, that was how they would solve problems. You know, when they sort of hit a wall in filming, they would take a break and play some innings of baseball and then go back again. And then, you know, later on, he was on the MGM Lions baseball team and any company he worked for, he would immediately start forming a team, you know? So he had this side also of, of wanting to solve problems through games, you know, and you see mm. that in his films all the time. But unfortunately, when he was hired by MGM, the, the, you know, he couldn't just stop the film and go and play baseball while he resolved something that was more disciplined approach to the- Yeah, well, he tried. I mean, that was actually, that's in the book too, that apparently Louis Mayer, the head of MGM at one, at one point tried to put an anti-baseball clause into his contract, like Keaton films may not take a break for baseball, but I think he still tried to get away with it. So you say, like you were saying uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. is one of your favorites, but there are also some of those films that are perhaps lesser known, which I think have amazing sequences, if not the whole film doesn't work. So College, you've already mentioned, I think has a series of amazing sequences, even though it might be a little bit patchy here and there. Uh, another one is Seven Ages with, no, wait a second. Seven Chances. Seven Chances, that's the mm -hmm. one. Yes. The one where he's chased by the brides at the end, you mean. Exactly. I mean, that last 10 minute sequence is amazing. And the film that comes before it, a little bit lesser. And there, and there we do have flashes of, as you say, the sort of uh, racism, anti-Semitism. I mean, there's one gag where he basically does all of them one after the other. Oh, right. Because he's looking for a woman to marry, right? The premise of the of the film, which he didn't want to make this film. He didn't like the story, but it was based on a play and his producer convinced him to make it. Uh, essentially because, you know, they wanted a kind of surefire moneymaker. But the premise of the of the movie is that his character has to get married by 7 p.m., right, on his mm -hmm. 27th birthday, or else he's not going to inherit some money that's been bequeathed to him by a relative. And so he wakes up on that day and is racing around looking for women to marry him. So as you say, yeah, there's a moment that he asks a bunch of women in a row by just sort of running up to them in the street, and it turns out, oh, one of them is black, one of them's Jewish, right? I can't remember the reason that he can't marry another, but it is essentially, you know, just a, a, it's just a series of marginalized groups that, you know, of course, are completely out of bounds. And yeah, that's an, another moment where you just see like, OK, you know, we are in the Jim Crow era. We are in the 1920s, you know, as inventive and, and like as timeless as this comedy is in many ways. It is also very much of its time in others. That sequence at the end where he's he's being chased and the rocks are cascading. and Oh, it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And the story of, of how that chase scene was filmed and how the rocks came into the movie is interesting because they played that one as well for a preview audience without the rock scene. It just ended. They didn't know how to end it. He's being chased at the end. And this is a good part of the chase, too. He's being chased by the brides, right? The hundreds of would-be brides that show up at this church after he places a classified ad saying, looking for a, a woman to marry, right? And I think he mentions the fortune. And so all these ladies in kind of homemade veils show up. 
And then there's a chasing where the brides are chasing him down the street. And it's funny, but it doesn't really have a conclusion, you know, and they just sort of faded out on the chase. And he thought that was a bad ending. They showed it to a test audience and nobody liked the whole movie, except for he said that there was an accidental moment as he's being chased by the brides at the end that he dislodges some rocks on a hill that he was running on. And these little rocks rolled after him. And people laughed at that, at the rocks rolling after him. And so he went back to his prop department and said, "Okay, I want you to construct and it was something like 500 fake rocks, you know, at a paper mache of all different sizes, going from little pebbles to this giant boulder that he's chased by at one point. And so they just tacked that whole chase on the crazy, insane rock sequence, which, again, you can hardly believe he survived because he's running down this steep, steep incline, you know, being chased by these giant rocks. And you're right. It's just one of the most bravura finales to any of his films. And it's very often shown out of context because you don't need to know exactly why he's being chased by the rocks to, to just laugh at the brilliance of that scene. Yeah, you don't need you don't even need the rest of the film really. I mean, there are there are some good bits in it, but uh, but that's by far the best the best part. So he goes to MGM and he starts doing these these in sound comes in and he loses creative control. But I think what's interesting about the sort of argument that you make in the book is that it's not that period is kind of quite short that he's that he's in an absolute sort of funk and he's he's drinking too much and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the, the, there's been this idea that then that was it for the rest of his career. And you sort of make an argument, no, that's not the case. That was a few years, but then, then his career took another uptick. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I don't gloss that over, you know, and I, I mean, I have a whole chapter about exactly how grim that period was, you know, in his life and in American history and in the history of addiction treatment, you know, mm. I mean, it just so happens that he was trying to sober up at a moment when, you know, the the, the way that, that America and maybe the world understood alcoholism was very different than now. And, you know, it was, it was just a, the rehabilitation places that he was sent to and where he did eventually get sober were really just horrible places to be. You know, he was taken away in a straitjacket at one point to one of them. Um, and those years were certainly very dark and, you know, not just because of the forces around him, but because of, you know, decisions that he himself made and deficiencies in his own way of dealing with trauma, for sure. But I do try to make the point, and I think it's really borne out by just, you know, his life story as it, as it unfolded, that yeah, it was not the it was not the Hollywood biopic story of a guy who drinks himself into a stupor and then he's never, you know, pulls himself out of it again. In fact, it's really a story of resilience and um and determination in some ways because he did draw claw himself out of that period. He did fairly shortly after that, you know, a few it after a few years in the in the dumps which I get into in the book you know, go back to work at MGM, but this time behind the scenes as a gag writer, you know, so at a significant salary cut and no longer in front of the camera, but writing comedy business for people like the Marx Brothers and Red Skelton and Clark Gable and anybody who was at MGM who needed a comedy bit, you know, he would be the person coming up with it behind the scenes and sometimes even directing it. Like there's a, mm. there's a musical called In the Good Old Summertime that he also has a small part in, a Judy Garland musical, where there's one scene, a, a physical comedy scene that, it's pretty obvious that he both wrote and directed. And you, if you watch the movie, you can't help but tell which one it is, you know, because of the gags that he thinks up uh, between Judy Garland and, and the leading man. And because of the way it's framed, you know, it, it just seems like he was this force behind the scenes where nobody else could really do it. So they would just give that scene to him. But yeah, he spent the 40s at the at MGM like that, kind of keeping his head down. And then when television came in in a big way at the end of the 40s and the early 50s, he had a real career resurgence because 
you know, suddenly there was a, a place for him to perform live again. You know, so much of early TV was broadcast live mm -hmm. and to, to work with a live audience, something he loved to do. And I get into this in the book too, but early TV was so, so um, vaudeville influenced. You know, it was essentially kind of vaudeville translated to the small screen. And so many of the big names in early TV, like Milton Berle, were people who came from vaudeville and then they did radio and then they did TV. They were never in the movies at all, really, you know. So Keaton adapted really well to that world. And by the mid 50s to the early 60s was a, a huge figure on TV. He had his own show briefly although his own show was never, never went national. It was, it was a syndicated, it was not a syndicated show. It was just an LA based regional show as many um, series were at that time, but he was on so many of the big series, you know, the twilight zone and candid camera and uh, the Donna Reed show, you know, any sort of sitcom or variety show would have him on. He was on Ed Sullivan all the time. So that was a really, I think um, a really rich period for him creatively uh, and and one in which he started to rediscover his early strengths as a performer again. So I think he, by the time he died in 1966, he sort of, he felt fulfilled, you know, by mm. his career. I think he could have been more fulfilled and it's hard for us as lovers of him as a director that he never got to really get behind the camera again and, you know, make his own movie exactly the way he wanted to because Hollywood just didn't have room for him in that way. But he certainly did a lot of work he was proud of and, you know, also had a happy marriage beginning in 1940 to his third and last wife. And I think I think he died a happy man. And that makes me that makes me glad after seeing, you know, the hard stuff he went through for a few years in the middle of his life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that about how vaudeville comes in back into television. And of course, you've got, um, excuse me, you've got reruns of of his uh, of his earlier shorts as will suddenly be appearing on TV as well. Yeah, that all started to happen around, I don't know, the the late 50s to early 60s, I think, when in general, silent film had been really forgotten about and, and sort of shunted away and was not even shown in retrospectives and things like that until around that time. It seems like there was almost this generational rediscovery of it, you know, and there was a big wave of nostalgia around that time in the kind of 50s and 60s about the early part of the century, I guess, inevitably, right? I mean, a couple generations later, people get nostalgic about the things that have disappeared from their their parents or grandparents' past. It would be like the 80s today, I guess. You know, that's why Stranger Things is so popular. Is uh, it's well, it's that's very strange, isn't it? It's yeah, the same distance in time. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you're you're looking back and saying, you know, the good old days of entertainment. You know, yeah. but when the good old days of entertainment involves this entire technological shift before movies even came in, you know, it's 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 just it's quite radical, um, the the change that that the world underwent in his lifetime. I mean, to get back to your early question about why I decided to write this book in the first place, it's it's about his lifespan in a way, mm. you know, and when I would try to explain it to people while I was writing it, it's always so hard to come up with a thumbnail sketch of your own book, you know, when it's in progress. But mine was something like this is a cultural history of Buster Keaton's lifespan, you know, mm. which was 1895 to 1966. And just think about those years and how the world changed and, you know, movies changed and technology and everything changed in those years. I mean, it's it's only a 70 year lifespan. He was 70 when he died, but it encompasses so much of our own recent history. And of course, one of the later things he does, which is kind of is almost too perfect, is the the film that he makes with Samuel Beckett. Um, Samuel Beckett, of course, hugely influenced by Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin and Keaton to some to some degree as well. But uh, you, I mean, Keaton doesn't really know necessarily who who Beckett is, or 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 is that a bit of a shtick on his part? I mean, it's a good question what Beckett would have been 
represented to someone like Keaton in the 1960s. He certainly knew who he was because Keaton had already been asked to to appear in a Beckett play and had turned it down. So yes, to, to begin with what, what he did do with Beckett in 1964, he made a short film, a kind of avant-garde short film that was Samuel Beckett's first and only um, attempt to make a film. Beckett wasn't the director. He was, he was the author of the screenplay, but he was very closely involved. And it was essentially his project. It was directed by Alan Schneider, who was his longtime theatrical director. So, you know, it was, it was sort of a, a Beckett joint, let's say. And, uh, and after trying to get some other people, they talked about trying to get Chaplin, but Chaplin was pretty much retired at that point. Um, I can't remember who else, but it was all sort of vaudevillian types, because as you say, Beckett loved, you know, he grew up as a teenager outside Dublin, watching all of those silent movies and loving them. And, you know, that kind of shtick is everywhere in his plays, right? Like mm-hmm. prop play and hats and, you know, things about tramps and bums and everything. It's all very, very influenced by silent comedy. But they ended up getting Keaton to appear in this film, which was called Simply Film, um, made in 1964. And it only showed at festivals at the time. It was not the kind of thing that would get a wide release. It was just way too arty. Uh, but I really recommend if people are reading this book or just interested in Keaton in general, that they watch film, even though it's not particularly successful, because it's just so strange strange and anomalous what it tries to do. And it has a kind of strange beauty to it, even though it doesn't quite work. Just the idea that Beckett and Keaton would collaborate on something, you know, that neither of them really knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, it's 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 a crazy story. But but to go back to, to what Beckett might have meant to Keaton in 1964, when he comes to him saying, hey, will you be in my, my arty short film? Um, Keaton had already been asked to to be in Waiting for Godot, the first American production of Waiting for Godot. After it, you know, it premiered in France, it was this big hit and kind of was revolutionizing theater already. And for its very first American production, which was sort of a tryout for Broadway, it was in, in Florida. Um, they asked Keaton to, to play the role of Lucky, who is, if you know the play Waiting for Godot, is this kind of enslaved character who shows up mm. with a rope around his neck being led in by another character and who doesn't say a word until near the end of the play, when he goes into this long kind of nonsensical gibberish speech that's kind of a parody of academic jargon or something like that. It would have been a perfect role for Keaton. It would have been incredible. Um, but at the time, Keaton had his his wife, Eleanor, his, his, his third wife, read scripts before he would decide whether to do them or not, because he was just not a big word guy, you know, and she would report back. So she read Waiting for Godot and just reported back, I have no idea what this is. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so he turned it down. So yeah, I'm sure he would have been aware that that Beckett was around and that he was a big deal in the entertainment theater world. But it just, that particular part of it wasn't Keaton's world. You know, he loved mm-hmm. Broadway and he loved, you know, going to see the next big show with musicals, things like that. But, you know, he was not an educated guy. He was not, he did not consider himself an artist. He was somewhat disdainful of people who did. And that would just it would not have been his world to have gone and seen a avant-garde play like Waiting for Godot. And yet at the same time, he strikes me as someone who is completely avant-garde. He's completely on the cutting edge. I mean, you just watch that scene from Sherlock Jr. where he climbs into the cinema screen and yes, it's a series of gags. Yes, I can see that, you know, hands-on inventiveness, but it's also, you know, 
I mean, it's what these days we would call postmodern. Yeah, that's why I guess the Keaton Beckett collaboration is so endlessly fascinating to consider. And the film is worth watching is that they shared a sensibility to such a huge extent, but they didn't really understand each other. You know, this is something else that always drew me to Keaton with fascination is that I think he's just he's the greatest artist I can think of who didn't think of himself as an artist, you know, who who actively sort of dismissed that label, in fact, you know, and his widow, Eleanor, would describe later how he would you know, he would be especially put off by people who would approach him with what she called that genius bullshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he always thought of himself as a, an entertainer and, you know, somebody who made people laugh and a craftsperson and seemed to really actively reject the label, you know, that he was any kind of artist or that he was engaged in anything that wouldn't be more than ephemeral. You know, I think he was almost surprised in a way that his movies, people wanted to see them all those years later. And, and another sort of contradistinction uh, with Chaplin, who who very much considered himself an artist. and uh... Yeah, and who I think clung really hard to that persona, you know, and I tell a story about Chaplin in his old age. This is told by Geraldine Chaplin, his daughter, um, that she had a boyfriend who came over to have dinner and and after and at some, at some point during dinner the, the boyfriend asked him so what was it like working with keaton and the, the boyfriend maybe seemed more interested in the keaton stories than the chaplin stories and said i want to hear about limelight and what working with keaton was like and i think chaplin didn't really answer didn't answer very in great length but then after dinner geraldine chaplin describes that he was sitting by the fire looking into the fire and out of nowhere she said in this tiny voice but i gave him work you know like he was and i was an artist that was what he said i was an artist and he was sort of going through in his mind is this very old man and sort of still resentful that anybody would think that Keaton was working on the same level as him. And that's kind of part of what I mean about it being hard to be that sympathetic with Chaplin. <laughs> it also wasn't true that Limelight was some work that Keaton desperately needed. In fact, his career was doing really well at that particular moment. No, it's a, I mean, that's a really good corrective to have, because that's certainly something I've been carrying around in my head prior to reading your book. And so, I mean, that's also a wonderful, upbeat way of looking. He's had a life of such uh, suffering, but as you say, it's the resilience, and it's the resilience which appears in his life, but it also appears very much in his work. I mean, it's it's perhaps a key to his art. It's that that deadpan face doesn't laugh, but neither does it crumble. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many ways, and it comes up again and again in the book, that his life and themes that he would revisit in his work reflect each other. You know, it's not that his work had to be directly autobiographical, and I think it wasn't, but but that again and again, he kept enacting this scenario that he was in fact enacting in real life of kind of endurance, resilience, you know, finding something funny in the absurdity of existence. You know, he was an atheist in real life and was not particularly interested ever in any spiritual or abstract way of understanding the world. And I think that really comes out in his films. You know, there's this um, there's this incredible belief in the world, you know, the imminence of the world and, you know, the, the that that to live well is to become somehow conversant with our surroundings, you know, and to to tolerate catastrophe as it is visited upon us. And that's really what most of his films are about. If you think about, you know, the the big storm that ends Steamboat Bill Jr., the one that causes the house front to fall on him and that that most famous of Keaton stunts, you know, that the end of that movie is really all about the earth, the world, the weather, visiting all these disasters upon you and how all you can do is sort of try to survive and be standing where the window is going to fall around you, you know? <laughs> and it's it's as if that's what he managed in his life as well. Literally a window of opportunity right there. <laughs> <laughs>
a window of survival. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, Dana. I've got one last question, which is the question I have to, I, well, I have to, I want to ask everybody. What would you recommend as a film book for our listeners? And you can have more than one. I'm glad I can have more than one, because when you said that this was a feature of the podcast, I immediately thought of two by the same author. And then I thought, but I should, I should also include one that has to do with my book directly. That is, mm. it has to do with the research for my book. And, um, and sets people down a path to be thinking about silent film and, and all of this stuff. Because I think there are plenty of really film conversant, you know, cinephile people who still don't know a lot about silent film. And it's understandable why, because it's so often left out of retrospectives and anthologies, or we, we experience in a very specific way. Like, here's a Keaton retrospective. Here's a Chaplin this, you know, here's a Mabel Norman that. But if you want to get a really good broad picture of um, the silent film world and who the big players were in it, it is also just a beautifully produced and written book. The Parade's Gone By by Kevin Brownlow, just such a classic. Do you know this book? I, I'm just beginning his David Lean autobi uh, not autobiography, biography. So yes, that's a great book too. Oh, Brownlow is so good. I mean, he's he's great on the research front. He's got it all. You know, he's mm. he's a fantastic researcher. So you will get you know like what I was saying about the David Robinson biography of Chaplin, like a really dense just massive documents about that person's life but Brownlow is also just a great critic you know he's so great at putting things in perspective and understanding you know how film fits into the history it occurs in and his career kind of was kicked off I'm not sure it was his very first publication but certainly a very early one is the parades gone by which is this oral history of silent film stars so it was written when these people were still alive but they were really getting up there you know I think mm -hmm. it was the year or two before Keaton died that Brownlow spoke to him and so there's a great um, interview with him that appears in there. They're not quite written in Q&A style. There's direct quotes because he taped the interviews. So it truly is an oral history, but it'll also be kind of framed with Brownlow's writing about that person. And it's and it's it's a huge coffee table book with gorgeous, gorgeous photos from both from the day, you know, and from uh, the, the period when he was interviewing these people. But he talks to everyone who was still alive. Um, so he, but he talks to so many other people. Well, Gloria Swanson, right, who we right. remember primarily from Sunset Boulevard, but of course she was in Sunset Boulevard because she had been a huge 1920s movie star. Uh, he talks to Harold Lloyd. He talks to Geraldine Farrar. He talks to Joseph von Sternberg, Mary Pickford, anybody who was still around and who would talk to him. The very young Kevin Brownlow ran around Los Angeles with a, a microphone recording them. And uh, so The Parade's Gone By was the very first thing I read when starting to research this book. And it's totally foundational and beautiful. The other two are both by, or at least in part by, Walter Murch, the great um, editor. And I don't even know what to call him, the great sort of sage of film editing, uh, who edited, what are some of the things he he edited? Help me, help me with some titles uh, here. Apocalypse Now, I think was one of his. Apocalypse Now, I think was right. Um, yeah. I think he worked on all of The Godfathers, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. The Conversation, which is one of my favorite films, the Coppola film. Anyway, I mean, I feel like he's in a way one of the fathers of, of you know, Hollywood editing from that new Hollywood era. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he's also a fantastic writer and thinker about film. He's just such an interesting man, Walter Murch. I wish he wrote more often. He writes very sparingly, mm -hmm. but whenever he does, it's something really fascinating. So The Conversations is a, is a book that's essentially him in conversation with with Michael Ondaatje, with the, the Canadian, is, is Ondaatje Canadian? Yeah, I think so, yeah, he's Canadian, um, maybe Toronto, but yeah. Anyway, he is a novelist who is also, you know, just somebody who is remarkably thoughtful and sort of great at just sitting around, I don't know, having engaging in dorm room stoner conversation at a very high level. So they talk about everything from, 
you know, their dreams to, you know, their thoughts about literature and film. And I think they talk about, yeah, Asian philosophy, Buddhism. I mean, they just really get into it. And uh, and it's it's really wonderfully transcribed to the page. So that really feels like you're in the company of Walter Murch, which is very cool. Um, as it happens, I once did meet Walter Murch in person. And that was partly what led to my fascination with his writing because he was on a panel that I was on. Panel sounds so boring. It was a much cooler thing than a panel. It was a a screening of Tarkovsky's Stalker oh, wow. with a bunch of people in attendance, including me and Francine Prose was there and Walter Murch was one of the people and they interrupted the screening. It was the thing that Roger Ebert used to do where you'd mm. show a screening. Oh, and Jeff Dyer was there and he was kind of the main focus because he had written this book on Stalker, right? A beautiful book called Zona about Stalker. It's my favorite Jeff Dyer book. And and he would stop the screening and uh, and talk about, you know, things that occurred on film as they related to his book. And then we would all sort of respond to it. And uh, it was a really great lively evening that I remember with great fondness. And mainly because Walter Murch was just such a brilliant, interesting man. He was quite old, even though this was probably, you know, eight years ago or something, he was already quite old and seemed a little frail. And I thought, oh, maybe he's kind of there as an emeritus professor guy who's going to mm. have a few words of wisdom. But no, he had this very young, lively mind. And he did this really interesting thing where he in the green room before we started screening the film, he brought this box, a wooden cigar box full of little, they looked like fortunes from fortune cookies, but they were mm. little quotes, little quotes from literature and, you know, writing on film and things like that, that he had found interesting and printed out as these little kind of tags and uh, and he would give them out almost like maybe this was part of his belief in the I Ching and things like that, which he talks about in conversations. But he just offered us all this, this box and said, here, pull out your own quote. And I remember wow. that I got one that was okay, but one of the other panelists got a beautiful one from Robert Bresson that I really loved. And I ended up swapping <laughs> and I, I still have that quote. I'm looking at it right now up on my bulletin board above my desk is this beautiful quote from, from Robert Bresson. I'll read it to you. Yes. So the Walter Murch quote, and just imagine it on a little fortune cookie size piece of paper, says, your film, it is born in your head. It dies on the page. It is brought to life during shooting where it is killed on film and then resurrected in the editing where it opens up like paper flowers in water. Whoa. <laughs> is that not mind blowing? <laughs> and to be given that by Walter Murch out of a cigar box before watching Stalker. I mean, it was just, it's a great memory. Life doesn't get better than that. That's like, <laughs> exactly. That's like, kill me now. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to, it's all downhill from here. Exactly. Exactly. That was the pinnacle. So, so then my second Murch recommendation, which I think I read right after that encounter, then I started researching who he was and, and realized, oh, he wrote a book on editing and it's called In the Blink of an Eye. And mm. this is a, a book that I often give to young people interested in film. You know, like I, I have a, a friend whose son graduated from Columbia doing film studies and wants to become a critic and so forth. I immediately gave him In the Blink of an Eye as a graduation present because it's not just a book about his experiences in editing. It does have some of that, you know, a little bit like Sydney, Sydney Lumet's great book on making movies, right, which oh, is very much yeah. a craft manual. Uh, but but because Merch is such a dreamy guy who goes around handing out for poetic fortune cookies <laughs> to strangers, it's also got a lot of really abstract thoughts about time. You know, he has all these theories about time that are really fascinating. And I'm going to get it wrong if I try to recreate it exactly. But the title in the blink of an eye comes from his theory that a shot should last as long as you would last between blinks, you know, and that he's kind of timing his editing to the human body and the human eye. And, uh, and then when do you vary from that and you hold it longer than a blink and what effect does that have? Anyway, it's just, it's really clear that there's a lot going on behind Walter Murch's eyes when he is looking at film to be edited and you can really see it in that. So the conversations and in the blink of an eye 
um, by Walter Murch and also Parades Gone By by Kevin Brownlow. Those are my recs. Oh, wow. Those are, those are three great books. The conversations I've read, and I remember there's an amazing story he tells because he's editing The English Patient, which of course is Michael Ondaatje's, uh, it's, it's adapted from his novel. And um, he tells us a, a story about uh, editing a scene with Willem Dafoe and he essentially puts in exactly the same shot of Willem Dafoe saying, you're not going to hurt me and then cuts away to something to the the torturer and then back to Willem Dafoe saying you're not going to hurt me and if you watch the film you think god Willem Dafoe he absolutely so good acting but it's exactly the same shot it's not like that he's repeating the line <laughs> wow he didn't have a second thing so he just used the same shot again and just and so that's a, a, an example of an editor kind of creating a scene rather than you know, just putting the materials together. He's actually decided, you know what? I need that line again. I wonder so I wonder whether that was the case that they, well, I wonder whether it was in the script twice. Do you know what I mean? And they just didn't get enough coverage or did mm. they plan that they were going to reuse the same shot? That would be fascinating to hear the genealogy of how that came to be used in that way. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that that is explained in, in the conversations. I can't, re, I can't remember exactly uh, what the, the story was, but I, I get a feeling it was just him saying this needs an, another beat, another moment. Oh, clearly, I, I need to go back to the conversations and read yeah. that part again because I, I love that story. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing, and those are, those are great books. Kevin Brownlow, I am definitely going to pick up that book because I've already started the David Lean biography, and I'm already hooked on his style of writing and his his the depth of knowledge. Uh, and as you say, it's great when you're in the company of a critic such as yourself, who you just just from the get go you kind of trust. You you just go, okay, we're we're on the same. I think we're on the same page. I think we're mm -hmm. you're gonna you're gonna show me new things, but and you're gonna tell me stuff I don't know. But you're gonna do do it from a place of uh, uh, a similar love of cinema, if you like. Oh, well, I'm I'm happy to know that I'm anywhere near um, Kevin Brownlow's territory in that respect for you. I, I should also mention, I guess, as long as we're singing his praises, that he may. He co-directed the by far best documentary that has been made on Buster Keaton, which is called A Hard Act to Follow, and which at the moment, at least until it gets taken down, is on YouTube in its entirety. It was made for British TV in the 80s, and it's three hours long, three separate episodes. And it really has, I mean, if you are reading along in my book and you sort of want to see the clips that I'm talking about, first of all, you can go see the entire movies really easily. They're almost all in the public domain and streaming for free somewhere. But you can also see them really well edited down by Kevin Brownlow and kind of presented, framed really beautifully in this documentary, A Hard Act to Follow, which I really recommend. Yeah, I'm de that's what I'm doing tonight. Oh, perfect. I've watched the Peter Bogdanovich one, but that sounds that sounds even better. Yeah, I have my doubts about the Peter Bogdanovich one. It's it's fine if you've never heard of Keaton before. It certainly will show you some, some good things, um, but it has some inaccuracies and also just condenses some stuff in a way that I don't love. I think that you will get a much more accurate and much funnier and livelier picture of Keaton's life if you watch Hard Act to Follow. That's the entertainment in the Bleasdale household uh, saw it for this evening. Ah, sorted. <laughs> thank you so much, Dana, for um, for giving me your time. And thank you so much for a wonderful uh, Buster Keaton biography, Cameraman. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciated all the good questions and the way that you really engaged with the ideas. Okay, that was my conversation with Dana. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we obviously did. We, uh, Buster Keaton, it's an absolute 
passion of mine and so it was such a pleasure and a privilege to pick the brains of somebody who has written you know what what might well be the definitive biography uh, her recommended books in, included Kevin Brownlow's uh, and the parade go and the parade goes by I think it was in the parade goes by let me just check I'm gonna Kevin Brownlow did I say Kevin Barlow Kevin Brownlow, The Parade's Gone By. There you go. Kevin Brownlow, The Parade's Gone By. Okay, now I'm faced with a dilemma. Do I cut out all of that humming and harring and I just make it sound very slick? And the Googling, of course. Do I cut out the Googling? Or do I leave it all in and retain a sort of human element to the to the podcast? I think I'm going to leave it in. I think I'm going to leave it in. I'll edit other people, but I'm not going to edit myself because, because you basically... Uh, I think you basically know that I am an imperfect human being and uh, and Google helps me out a great deal. So uh, Kevin Brownlow, The Parade's Gone By was one of the recommended books that Dana gave us, but she also gave us uh, Walter Murch's book, The Conversations with Michael Ondaatje, and In the Blink of an Eye. And those were two uh, two other additional recommended books. Thanks go to uh, Ali Howard for the art, Elliot Atkins for the music, and thanks to you, dear listener. I uh, hope you uh, enjoyed that conversation, um, uh, and I'll. Uh, I guess. I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Goodbye. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.